2: Hi, this is Chris Cooper, BeMoreAchieveMore dot com and CC One consultingcom com, and I'm delighted to be back with you again for uh, yet another week. And believe it or not, this is the 60th show. I just find that quite quite hard to believe uh, when I first started doing this. Um so, about 15 months ago. So, we're 60 shows in now, and I've really had some exciting news this month. I just wanted to share uh, that the show had a fourfold increase in listeners in October, and this explosion seems to be due to people discovering and sharing the value of the show and the archive, and it's just wonderful um with the aim is being to provide great content uh, that we're attracting more and more listeners and people are sharing it and uh, that's mean we're kind of the clear number one show for entrepreneurs and business leaders on the network we're presently third out of 45 business shows on the on the platform um so that's just fantastic news so thank you so much for listening and thank you very much to all of those guests who've been on the show and have just made it uh, such a great e- experience and learning environment really and um, my guest last week was Paul Cook, who shared his thoughts on how to put on great events. And again, there's some really great content in there. I think it was a masterclass in terms of how to put on a great event and some of the things that you need to think about. And, and I was just delighted um, that he's also now putting some of these shows on his website. And I've had a few people say to me, can I put these shows on my website? Can I blog about them? Uh, and that's absolutely fine. If you go to the show site and you look at... Um, uh, the shows that you're interested in. You just hover over my face. You'll see that there's a, a little embed link, embed code that will come up, and you can embed them onto your site. But of course, um, you know, do uh, leave a link with my my um, email with website address, be more more dot com. It's also you know courteous to mention the uh, the guest as well. Um, now, um, I just want to um, just to uh, also uh, mention. um, yeah, I guess. Sorry, that, what it was is I had a question about my Achiever program, and I thought it was a very good one. And somebody asked me um, why um, was I promoting my Achiever program on the Voice America site when it's by invitation only? Um, so I just wanted to clarify that. The, the Achiever program is a program for uh, business people, for entrepreneurs and leaders who want to continuously develop and grow themselves with the benefit of, of ongoing. Um, studying and um, being held accountable each month. And we do that over a, a teleseminar uh, type, type of phone line. And also, if you're in the UK, there's some sort of face-to-face get-togethers. Now, what I do is when somebody wants to join that programme, I do talk to them one-to-one and have a, a conversation and really just see if the program's right for them. And if it is, uh, then I'll invite them to join. If it's not right for them, then I won't. Um, so uh, that's why the invitation-only piece comes in. But thanks very much for that question. So over to today's show. Now, the effective use of emotional intelligence, including questioning, is absolutely essential to the development of exceptional client relationships, and particularly if your role requires you to become a a high-trust advisor to your clients, uh, then this is key. And today we're going to therefore explore the questions and language techniques adopted by successful high-trust advisors. My guest on this show is Sean Weaver, and he's a leading international expert. He speaks around the world, he coaches, and he's an author on how business advisors and relationship managers can use emotional intelligence to become high-trust advisors, Uh, the purpose of that being to release, the, in his words, the lifetime value of their clients and create sustainable, profitable income streams. Now, I know Sean is a a pioneer in the field of executive and business development coaching, has an incredible client list. He's a qualified psychotherapist. Uh, He's, um, like myself, a master practitioner of NLP, a hypnotherapist. Um, my hypnotherapy I just use occasionally on my son to try and get him to sleep at the end of the evening. Um, uh, but he's also an author of many articles on executive coaching, sales and networking. He's a past founder member and honorary vice president of the Association for Coaching in the UK and a fellow of the Professional Speakers Association. Um, so you know, when the success or failure, and if you think back through your business experience, you might be able to pinpoint a few critical moments and meetings that either made the difference or could have made the difference if you've been successful in them. Being successful in those critical moments is so important, isn't it? So I'd recommend to listen today with a pen and paper handy uh, while uh, we talk to, I uh, talk to Sean. Um, so I'd just like to welcome Sean Weaver to the show.
3: Hi, Chris. How are you?
2: Uh, absolutely fantastic. Thank you. And yourself? I'm
3: wonderful, thank you. Wonderful indeed. I'm watching evening fall over the mountains around Dublin city at the moment, so it's really nice.
2: Uh, how, how how beautiful! It's uh, in England at the moment. It's absolutely freezing and very wet, so I don't think you'd be able to see the mountains at the moment if there was. <laughs> <laughs> so you're an Irishman then, Sean? I am indeed. I think you may just be able to pick the accent up there now, Sean. Over. I was thinking a little bit about you and um, I believe that in your past you were in the merchant navy I was just wonder how how does um, that being in the merchant navy how's that translated into today being an expert in emotional intelligence in the business world
3: Well yeah I started life as a merchant navy officer specifically as an engineering officer and I guess when you go away to sea and you're on tankers as I was which is deep sea uh, and sea going. you'd spend up to three months on a ship with outside of land. So it was kind of important you learned to get along with people because you were living in pretty close quarters. So I guess um, what the coping strategies, if you will, that we learned unconsciously, I eventually decided to study so I could teach people how to become consciously aware of how to create very low-pressure, uh, high-trust relationships with people so you can work really effectively with them.
2: Yeah, I I imagine that really is important when you are so close to people on a boat. Um, I, I guess things could get a bit fraught in those sorts of environments, I imagine, if you're not emotionally intelligent.
3: Well, I mean, let's put it this way. You don't have anywhere to go, or at least you have nowhere to go voluntarily. Let's put it that way. So it's kind of important you get on with people, you know.
2: I remember seeing a TV program about uh, life on a submarine. It just found it incredible the amount of time people were spending down there and uh, where their sleeping quarters were, like laying next to a torpedo. Uh, I imagine <laughs> that was pretty, yeah. uh, even worse than being on a, a battleship or something.
3: <laughs> well, actually, funny enough, when you're at sea, particularly deep sea, you ended up being used as uh, – as a center of war games for many different navies, so you got to see everybody wandering around the place uh, with you as the target, so to speak, but thankfully not for real.
2: All right, (laughs) so so tell me, from your perspective, what is a high trust advisor?
3: I think uh, a high-trust advisor or a high-trust relationship is different from what might traditionally have been known as the trusted advisor in the sense that in our relationships, we have different levels of trust. So, for example, you and I, Chris, might trust each other, but we might not share everything with each other. Uh, Whereas in a high-trust relationship, what you have is such a compelling relationship with someone that there's no reservation, there's no hesitation at all in terms of me sharing information with you. So that means that if you are a business advisor like an accountant or legal person or a wealth manager or a private banker or a technology specialist, it means that you will learn all of my challenges, which means that you're better able to serve me. There's nothing held back. You become my my go-to guy, if you will, from the client's perspective.
2: So – I can really relate to that, and I just wonder for people may be listening and maybe do kind of negotiation in their work uh, how uh, How open do you think you should be with people? Uh, could some of that evidence information be used um, against you, or do you think when you develop a really high trust advisory sort of relationship, then um, people don 't challenge you in that way?
3: Well, funnily enough, uh, the modules of the coaching program that we run, we actually don't include negotiation. Um, And the reason we don't include negotiation is that we, we encourage transparency. And the perspective that we have is that if you build such a compelling level of rapport such a close relationship with someone, then really what happens is there's a mutual desire to serve each other. In fact, we redefine selling as the ability to manage the emotional state of the client so that you can influence their logical decisions for the transfer of good services and money for the mutual benefit of both parties. So that concept of mutuality is really important for us.
2: I, see, I can. People may understand why I suggested to have a pen and paper. <laughs> <laughs> There's probably flames coming out of the, uh, out of people's pads right now. <laughs> uh, the that, good, good thing about this is you can have the recording and you can, uh, toggle backwards. Um, so, uh, okay. So it's about, um, you say it's about, um, the, the emotional state, managing the emotional state of the relationship. Is that what mm-hmm. I?
3: Mean yeah. That? That's, that's a really key point because all decisions that we make are fundamentally emotionally. Derived, so it doesn't matter how logical you are about it. The logic is used to justify the decision afterwards, but the decision itself tends to stem from deep-seated emotional values, such, for example, uh, convenience or security or uh, achievement or recognition. I, I, I mean, the example I tend to use is I ask people, look, most people think that price is a really important issue when it comes to business, but in fact, price is never or very seldom the most important thing. Because uh, I mean, if you've ever been in a store, for example where you paid more money for something that you knew you could get somewhere else cheaper, but nevertheless you paid the money. I mean, that's an illogical choice, but you did it because it was more convenient for you to do it or you had a relationship or a bond with the person behind the store or you just trusted the store to be there for you if you had a problem. So fundamentally, that decision is where emotion overcame price in every case.
2: That's really interesting because I did that only yesterday. I bought one of these little dab radios because the other one had packed up. and I could have got it about eight pounds cheaper online. I knew that. Um, however, um, I actually uh, have greater confidence in the ethics of John Lewis where I bought it and the alternative provider. So I made the decision to, uh, to spend the extra eight pounds.
3: Well, that's a that's a classic example of another value, which is the value of reassurance. Uh, you'll get uh, big car firms like BMW and Audi, and you know they're not advertising to get people to buy. They're advertising to reassure people that they bought the right car in the first place and paid uh, an awful lot of money for it, and therefore they made the right decision.
2: Mm. Mm. So let's get let's move on to questions. So why are questions just so important in business meetings?
3: I think questions are really important for the simple reason that what they do, the only time in a relationship that you have the full attention, involvement, and engagement of a client is when you've asked a question. The reason being that they have to do two things. One, they have to consider what you said, which means that all their mental processing power is now focused on something you've just put into their head by means of a question. Uh, and two, they have to r- respond to that question, which means that they can 't concentrate on anything else except what you 've just installed in their head by using a question if you If you make statements for example if you if you dictate certain things, you have a challenge, and that challenge is that uh, uh, they may push back at you and say, well, I disagree, in which case you have two options. One, you can either agree that they're right, in which case you've lost face, or two, you have to get engage in some sort of an argument with them, which simply breaks rapport. But with a question, you have uh, room to maneuver. You can say, well, it was just a question I was just asking. But the other thing is that you've installed it so fully in their head that they have to reflect on what it is you put into the question that that actually gives you the power in the relationship.
2: Mm. Hey, we've only got about uh, three minutes to commercial break, but I just wondered uh, how you've got some examples of how you've seen people getting questioning wrong.
3: Yeah, well, I think probably the first thing is just not using questions at all. Um, You'll get a certain kind of personality who tends to come in and likes to see themselves as the expert, and this is how we're going to do it, and this is what we're going to do, and this is what's going to happen afterwards. The problem with that is that there's a big shift in values in terms of dealing with clients. And what clients are looking for now is not experts. They're looking for people who will cooperate with them, who will uh, co-create things with them. They're looking for more ownership of the process. And what they really want us to do is interpret information. If we're simply coming in and firing information at them, we're actually not bringing them into the process. And as a result of that, you may very well lose them. Um, so questions are really, really powerful ways of bringing people into the process. The other key issues where I've seen questions not being used is when we start to make assumptions that we assume we know what the client wants. That's another fatal error. After rapport, by building a relationship with the client, questions are the next most important process in the relationship and doing business with somebody else. Because unless you ask the right questions and understand, you can't present the information in a way that they want it.
2: I think that's a very interesting answer and, and a very valid answer. Uh, many years ago, my sort of business experience, I was a sales trainer for Mars, the, uh, the uh, confectionery company uh, at the time. And uh, one of the things I, we did is we always taught people about questioning and about using an, an appropriate funnel of questions and the different types of questions. But one of the challenges that I always saw whenever I, I would go out accompanying salespeople is that uh, naturally – Salespeople seem to be recruited because they, um, you know, are driven and and confident, but they also tend to be very gregarious and talk a lot and not listen a lot. So I just wonder, you know, from your perspective, is there a style thing in here as well, which means that certain people actually aren't as good as asking questions as uh, maybe they think they are.
3: Yeah, I think I think there are different personality styles that we deal with no matter where we are in relationships or who we are in relationships. But I think regardless of who we are, how gregarious we are or how um, non-gregarious or introverted we are, I think the real key to relationships is being curious about the other person. And the best form of curiosity and the best way to assuage your curiosity is to be seen as a person who asks questions. One of the reasons that questions are so important is that, as I said earlier, they invite the client to engage with you rather than you simply pushing something onto them. It also gives you the impression of, or gives them the impression of you being a very reflective and considered individual. It ha- actually helps build your executive presence because rather than rushing in to give an answer or rushing in to give a question, you're seen to be considered and reflective. And that adds a lot of kudos to the relationship and a lot of credibility into you as well. So that's why questions
2: can be really important from that perspective. Yeah, and people really like to feel listened to, don't they? Oh, um, usually, yeah. We're going to go, to go to commercial break now. and After the commercial break, we'll look at, move into looking at uh, different categories of questions and uh, the types of questions that are really effective to use in uh, business meetings. So we'll be back with you in just about a couple of minutes. Mm-hmm.
1: facilitated leader development workshops and speeches email info at be to arrange a free no obligation consultation to see how chris and his team can help you
0: do you like most americans spend the majority of your life at work are you making it the joy that it deserves to be or are you feeling drained and unfocused tune in to a great place to work with hosts kurt kaufman and dr kathy Sorensen. Your hosts have more than 30 years of experience in workplace consulting and are ready to bring you the secrets and success stories of businesses who are making their business a great place to work. Listen every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel and enjoy a better workplace and a better life. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business
1: Network.
2: Hi, this is Chris Cooper of com, and I'm with my guest, uh, Sean Weaver, and we're talking about uh, using questions to influence client meetings. Um, now, Sean, um, before the break, we were obviously talking about um, this uh, concept of high-trust advisor and also uh, questioning, and uh, I've heard you mention the term soft language before. And um, What yeah. do you mean by soft language?
3: Uh, Soft language is the kind of language that you can install in your conversation that it's when you ask questions, it doesn't imply a judgment based on the answer that you give us. So, for example, I might ask you a question, but if you give me an answer, you might be concerned about the way I might respond to that. You might think I'm going to make a judgment or think that it's a good answer or a bad answer. If you use soft language, it it sort of softens the whole process so it feels a whole lot less threatening. I mean, a classic example of that is what psychologists call, say, forced teaming, which is using the word we. Um, in order to help people facilitate a conversation. So what I'd do is if you and I were talking, Chris, I'd say, well, so what do we need to do next and where would we then go and what's the next step we need to look at? So it's using this concept of we that implies a team between you and the other person. That tends to lessen the barriers between you and them. Um, I often use the expression that you use we for facilitation. And then you use you for implementation. So when it comes to where you both agreed something that's going to happen, you need to let them know that it's their decision or it's their action to do. So it's only at the end of that conversation you would say, so what do you think you might need to do? Would you be able to do that between now and the next time we get together, for example? So we for facilitation and it's you for implementation. But other words that, that fit into that category would be things like if or suppose or maybe or perhaps or might or would. These are very, very soft words that soften a statement. So you might say something like, would it be okay if I were to call you? Or might you be more comfortable if we did this? Or suppose we were to do that, how comfortable would you be? It's, if you listen to it, it actually softens the language. So we're not making very directive statements. We're using almost, um, suggestive type language, which lessens the threat from the other person and increases their receptivity. So that's what, what I tend to call soft language.
2: That's very clever. And I, I guess that from that, people then uh, don't feel that, like they're being sold to
3: Absolutely. It's a very inclusive form of language, and this concept of inclusion is really, really important because, as I talked about earlier, I think this idea of the co-factor, that the values in business have changed a lot over the last number of years since the coming of the information age. In the past, it was very much about you know, masculine values of command and control and campaign and dominance and authority and being the person in charge and all that sort of stuff, and now very much it's this idea of cooperation or collaboration or co-ownership or connection or community. Um, they're the real key things that matter and and very much the clients are much more in the driving seat now than they ever were i think as i said just before the break they just have so much more access to information that they can gather the data what they really need us to do is advise them on how it becomes compellingly relevant to them and their problems
2: mm. you, you went when we were chatting bef- before the show you mentioned to me about the definition of se- of selling of sales um, and yeah. where that where that actually came from i thought that was quite interesting maybe just Share that because I think.
3: Yeah, I think there's this sort of this traditional approach about salespeople. They go, Oh, the salespeople is is, is coming and everybody goes fearful in that respect. I think that's that old negative stereotype of this high pressure, hard sell type commercial traveler thing, which really, you know, is, is, isn't very, very seldom the case anymore. Uh, Selling as a word comes from a Scandinavian term, Selge, which means to be of service. So it's not about pitching information. It's not about forcing information onto people, even expertise, no matter how good it is. It's about finding how can I provide value, how can I be of service. Now, if I find someone that I can't be of service to, well, then the professional thing is simply walk away. And if I can be of service, then to do that in the best way possible, that's really the true definition of selling. And, and therefore, it's not something that um, professional people should be afraid of. <laughs>
2: And that fits in very nicely what, you, you know, the kind of language patterns you're talking about earlier about maybe and would and might and suppose it's yeah. more service orientated than uh, than in-your-face selling. Yeah, I, I mean, approach, you know, be people off-boxing. talk
3: about servant leadership now. So this is almost like servant selling you know, or servant business development or whatever you want to talk about. The, the essence of any aspect of business comes down to the quality of the relationship. And it's our job as the professions are seeking to create those relationships or sustain those relationships to become the kind of master communicators that makes the other person feel perfectly comfortable. Um, and and that's really the key. If we can do that, then business becomes easy.
2: So do you think then I've often had often been out with salespeople or spoken to salespeople who are, you know, have this. Approach of you know what are two objectives in here, Well, my objective is that I want to sell twenty thousand pounds or dollars of of this or that now i I think maybe a more healthy approach is actually to um, to focus those objectives on on taking the relationship to another step forward yeah. uh, and then that and the rest can come i don 't know what 's your view of that i mean
3: well I suppose uh... I mean, first of all, that obviously has to be a business development objective at the end of it. So there needs to be either a revenue target or a, or an income target. So that that's always going to be in that space. But that revenue or incomes target really only comes from how we provide value to a client. And I often talk about, you know, we don't sell products and we don't sell services. We create experiences. Um, and it's what the, the product or the service, ultimately the experience it creates for people that matters. And we don't really get to understand people's problems until we first develop a very heightened relationship with them. Um, and they engage with us fully in that respect. I, I also differentiate between professional salespeople and business advisors. Um, For example, most professional salespeople tend to be pretty narrowly focused on creating a sale or making a sale, and they hand it on to somebody in customer support to look after them. Whereas with a business advisor or a wealth manager or somebody who sustains long-term relationships, their job is to create the relationship, but then it's also to nurture the relationship. You know, to make sure that relationship continues over a very long period of time, and that we can create the monetary value that comes out of that on the basis of service. So, I do differentiate between the two as well in terms of a, a specific a professional salesperson and a professional business advisor or, or relationship manager. There, there are multiple levels of differentiation.
2: So, as a professional business advisor, uh, then, how would you? You know, recommend structuring a client meeting uh, for maximum effect, or do you let them structure it? I mean, how how would you go about that?
3: I think um, uh, I think really the most important thing is your ability to build rapport with people. So there's a whole lot of things that fit into that space, including you know what we call first contact. You know, your handshake, your smile, all that sort of stuff. Recognising the personality type you're dealing with, but if you just come straight down to questions. I mean, critical questions are to bring the person into the conversation is to ask them about their business. I mean, they know their business. Nobody can challenge them on their business, and it's a great way to begin the conversation. In many cases, sometimes what I would encourage people to do is use what I call a values-based conversation, and that simply allows you to identify the key values or criteria by which they make decisions about what it is you're offering. So I might say to somebody, so – uh, Mr. Prospect or Ms. Prospect, in terms of, we we'll just say, for example, your future IT needs in the next six months, what's most important to you? And ask them, what is the most critical thing? And they'll give you a word. They'll say, you know, convenience or security or access or whatever it happens to be. And then by using a couple of other questions, like, but what else is important or anything else? And then one really key question, if there was anything else, what would it be? I actually will identify four key areas that that individual uses to make his decisions or her decisions around buying IT services or legal services or accounting services. Now, getting those four things is very important because these are the fundamental values on which he or she is going to base their decisions. But we're not quite ready just yet. We then need to get those four things and put them in order. So in other words, they have a sequence. So if somebody says, let me just make it up, convenience or access or security or price, we'll say, those four things need to be put in order. So I'd simply ask, well, out of those four things, what would be the most important? And then out of the remaining three, what's the next most important? And then what's the next most important? If you get those four things in that order, Chris, what you have is a very, very compelling foundation to making a powerful sales proposal or business proposal. So that's what we call value solicitation which really also helps you to make uh start using the client's own language. And if you're able to use the client's own language, it also means you're p- building very powerful and very deep rapport with them as well.
2: Excellent. I would recommend to anyone who's listening to this at the moment is if you're you know a trusted advisor and what you heard there was interesting, I would seriously Write that down and reflect on it, and start using it. Um, that value elicitation process—I've um, used that before in uh, training and development work that I've done. I did use that with a large corporation, and that that single process there that um, Sean has just identified—we identified, um, we identified um, several million pounds worth of additional business uh, that people could pinpoint came down to purely introducing that elicitation into the sales process. Um, so very powerful you you can make a lot of money um, utilizing that one well
3: it Um, also helps you to build and I think from my perspective Chris it's that powerful rapport that it helps you to do because the client then realizes that uh, when you use his or her language that you understand exactly what he or she is talking about you feel the way that he or she feels and that you have that meaning uh, you understand the meaning that he attaches to those words it's very compelling stuff you know
2: Certainly is. So um, let's, uh, in terms of the types of questions, uh, maybe you could just share um, the, a few kinds of questions. Then after the commercial break, we'll come back and we'll, we'll run through the different types of questions and give people you know, ideas and thoughts about um, styles and approaches they can use. So you know, what, what kind of questions uh, would you recommend people use when they're having a meeting?
3: Okay. Well, I mean, there's 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 the classic open and closed questions, which most people are familiar with. But actually, there's a couple of pitfalls in using those questions that you need to be aware of. And there's a way to make them even more powerful than they are currently. And and, and I'll walk through that with you as well. You then have other questions. I mean, there's there's tag questions, there's uh, state install questions, there's ex, there's exploratory questions, there's answer assist questions, there's double bind and preferential questions. There's a, there's a whole range of questions which, when you become aware of them, Become very powerful tools in uh, managing and influencing that meeting, um, and, and you know absolutely we can share some of those uh, after your commercial break.
2: Fantastic. Well, we'll just uh, go across to a commercial break right now, and we'll be back again in just a couple of minutes.
1: One-to-one mentoring and coaching, facilitated leader development workshops, and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you.
0: What if you were able to make extra money in your free time? Okay, we hear that all the time. But High Yield is all about finding investment strategies that have proven results. Your hosts, Frank Rolfe and Dave Reynolds, will bring you the insider tips that will help create double-digit yields and give you the quality of life you want, despite a troubled economy. Just keep your mind open and listen every week for High Yield with Frank and Dave, Fridays at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business.
2: Hi, it's Chris Cooper here of BeMoreChemo.com. Be I'm with Sean Weaver, and we're talking about using questions to influence client meetings. Now, um, Sean, you gave us a number of different uh, types of questions uh, that are useful to use in a, in a meeting, uh, potentially. And uh, I'm going to ask you if you could maybe share a little bit more background around some of them. We're not going to have the time to cover all today, but let's start with um, open and close, which most people will have heard of. You know, What is the best way to use open and close questions?
3: Well, I think, um, I mean, obviously the difference between open and closed questions are open questions are encouraging feedback and engagement, and they have multiple applications, whereas closed questions tend to be looking for just a yes or a no, so confirmation or denial. So is that something you're doing? Did you do that? Are you going to do that? Will be classic um, closed questions. Open questions are far more interesting. I'm always reminded of the English writer Rudyard Kipling, who said, I had six honest serving men, and they served me true. Their names were how, what, why where, when, and who. So they were the open questions which I assumed helped to write such great books as The Jungle Book and The Man and Whoopi King and so on. But um, in actual fact, poor uh, Mr. Kipling was, was actually wrong because one of those questions actually could get you in a whole heap of trouble. And that question is the question, Why? So if you just come straight out and say, well, why did you do that or why didn't you do that, there's a chance that you might break rapport because it's seen as a, a blame-orientated or a, as a challenging question which can actually damage rapport. So I always suggest that people do what we call pre-frame that question. In other words, you ask permission to ask that question. So you might say something like, well, which you might have asked you, why? Or would it be okay if I, if I asked why? By saying something like that, it softens it greatly. So you still get the question but you're less likely to impact on rapport. And that's probably the first thing I'd say about the open questions. The other big thing about them is that you tend to get general answers. By that, I mean, if you say something like, well, how many people have to come to the meeting? You know, somebody might say, you know, two or three maybe or four. Or when do we have to have that meeting? They might say, well, next week or the week after. To really ensure that you get absolutely quantifiable information in those questions, always use the word specifically. So you might say, so how many people specifically have to be at that meeting? Or when specifically would you like to meet? And and by using that word, it absolutely breaks people out of their general trance and gets them to give you absolutely quantifiable information. It also helps you to get the decisions a whole lot quicker as well. So that would be pretty much what I'd say around the open questions, just being aware of how to use them effectively. And, and also that question is very powerful in dealing with what we call global objections. You know, when somebody says to you, well, Chris, you know, you always do that or you never do that. That can be kind of a hard objection to deal with because uh, we don't know how to relate to that. But if you were to turn around and say, well, look, may I ask a question? When specifically did we do that last? The chances are that, that what that person's trying to do is overwhelm you with a global objection and they're not going to be able to come up with a specific objection. In which case you can then reply, well, with all due respect, if you can't come up with a specific incident and we're always supposed to do it, you know, don't you think it's just possible we don't always do it? Now, now you're on the risk of a little bit of rapport damage, but sometimes you have to qualify Unqualified objections from clients; otherwise, they become their reality. So that's sort of an example of how you might use open or closed questions.
2: Yeah, I, 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 something that's coming to me at the moment um, from you saying that is sometimes you, you get a response when people make uh, these kind of universal statements, don't they? That uh, you know things always behave like that, or yeah, you know exactly. leaders always do this, and uh, you know the, the response there is that uh, I, I guess to in, in a very sensitive way, is to have asked the question, Well, you know, have you ever had a situation when a leader didn't do it? Or,
3: or when, when specifically did they do it last? I mean, they yeah. may give you a specific event, in which case, fine. But in most cases, the people who tend to use those kind of objections are t- attempting to dominate the engagement and often won't have a specific incident. But they never get challenged, and so they tend to get away with it.
2: Uh, the, the close questions are interesting. I saw a, a wonderful. A video many years ago and it was on uh, an, an Alan Peace and the sort of body language expert video and there was a, a TV presenter and she was interviewing an Aborigine and I think she must have been relatively new because she was asking him questions like, um, do you like living in the outback? Yes. <laughs> do you still hunt with Do you still hunt with spears? Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> and the whole interview—it was the most agonising thing to watch. She was incredibly frustrated because this aborigine was not sharing any useful information with her whatsoever. He could just see the tension within her rising and rising, and frustration <laughs> but, at him. But there, there's a classic there's
3: a classic challenge, right? You get the same thing in a business relationship, and think about the frustration you're creating in the mind of the customer, in the mind of the client. I mean, you, you know, you're just not giving them any chance to engage, to explain, to explore. How can you ever create a compelling relationship under those circumstances?
2: So perfect. So that uh, helps me move on to the next category then uh, that we mentioned. Of, let's talk about exploratory questions. How do we use oh,
3: exploratory expl- questions? Yeah. Um, exploratory questions tend to be something that I use when uh, if you're in a conversation and you're somebody, somebody just blurts something out at you, you know, they just say something or they ask a question. And you know when you get sort of caught off balance by that kind of situation? Have you ever had that situation, Chris, where someone catches you off balance by just throwing something at you all of a sudden? Completely. Um, And it's hard to get back on and, and reassume control. So there's this thing which I call an exploratory question. And that question is very simple. It's very conversational. You simply say, well, how do you mean? How do you mean? Now, actually, for that question to be grammatically correct, we would have to say, what do you mean? in which case they'll just say well what i just said what are you deaf you didn't hear me what's the problem but by saying how do you mean it actually forces the person to go back into their uh, mind if you will reconsider what they've just said and in many cases what they will do is they'll either explain they'll either answer their own question or they'll explain it in another way that makes it easier to understand and in the meantime You've had a moment or two to consider and get yourself back online again. So it's a powerful way of reassuming control of a relationship when you've been kicked off balance. It's also a very good way to get someone to continue to speak when they finish speaking. So when they they say blah, 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 whatever it is, and they finish speaking, and then you simply say, well, that's interesting. How do you mean? Sit back and watch them give you more information. So so from two perspectives, one is having somebody qualify what they've said and give you a chance to get back uh, in control of the meeting, and the other situation where you're looking to gather more information, this exploratory question, how do you mean, is very, very powerful. And because it's in a conversational manner, people don't hear it. They simply respond to it.
2: Yeah. I wish I had that question in my toolbox a number of years ago when I used to represent a function and sitting in on a board meeting and the the guy who ran the board meeting would uh, talk and talk and... uh finger at a number of people, um, because I was representing the function, uh, a different function, uh, wouldn't have a lot of input into the meeting except I had to be there. But then usually you've been there about sort of 90 minutes and you're just about to start to drift off and suddenly the finger would be pointed at you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Something would be thrown at you, which you just weren't <laughs> expecting. Uh, <laughs> and uh, how do you mean could be quite, um, could have been well, quite all useful. you had to do in that's that true.
3: situation was just lean back a little, look reflective and say, well, that's interesting. How do you mean? And watch him dance to your tune instead of you dancing to his.
2: Absolutely. Uh, So, um, answer and assist. What, what are answer and assist questions?
3: On answer assist question. Yeah. Um, classic question is uh, often when we're asking questions, someone will turn around and it'll say, well, I don't know. Um, in which case you're kind of caught (laughs) because if they say, I don't know, where do you tend to go from there? It, It can be a sort of question that really prevents you from getting to an outcome but in most cases somebody will say i don't know to you for probably three different reasons one they don't know which is fair enough two they have an answer but they don't want to share it with you because they're afraid of how you might you know you might respond negatively or you might make a judgment about what it is that they say and the third reason is they're actually trying to block you they don't actually want you to go down a particular route so the way to deal with that question is when someone says i don't know to you There's there's three elements to the response. The first is to affirm. So you're going to say to them that it's okay not to know the answer. The second part, then, is to use the English language's greatest deleter, which is the word but. So, for example, Chris, I'm really, really enjoying spending time with you, but uh, (laughs) what that does is just delete everything I've just said beforehand. And then the last part is actually to make a request. So the way the question would work is, so somebody says to me, I don't know, and I would say, Listen, Chris, I completely appreciate It's not always easy to know the answer, but um, just suppose you knew. I mean, if you were to know, what would you say or what would you do? That last bit, if you were to know, or just suppose you knew, is what we call the request part. So by putting the three together, we have a very conversational question that the person now responds to. Now, if they had an answer, they will most likely share that with you now, in which case you will say, well, that's a great idea. Let's work with that, shall we? So by saying, look, I appreciate it's not always easy to know the answer. You relax the threat piece for them. Then you use the word but deletes what you've just said. If you were to know, just suppose you know, I mean, you know, what would you say? What would you do? That makes it easy for them to share with you. Now, if they don't have an answer, genuinely don't know, or if they're blocking you, then what you would say is, well, okay, well, would you mind if I made a suggestion? Now what happens is you're still moving forward because somebody's looking for an answer. They're going to say yes. So you give them the suggestion that allows you to move forward. If they say no to your suggestion, it then indicates they have another agenda going on, and you need to retrace your steps and find out what it is. And that's how an answer assist question would tend to be used.
2: I think that's a really interesting question because you're just thinking about that. What what you could do in that situation, if somebody generally doesn't know, by asking that question, in in some ways it's a a coaching question, it could actually open up. Something for them, it could actually unrelease something that they didn't necessarily know the answer to or have an answer to. You could have, you could have significantly helped them find a new solution.
3: Hugely, because again, you see, the whole essence of all of this is, to, is about creating low threat, high permission relationships. And if you can create low thread, high permission, high trust relationships, then you've got a partner. You don't have a customer or a client. You have someone that you're working with together uh, to 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 resolve their challenges and then be recompensed for doing so, which they're perfectly comfortable doing with you. You so you become more than just you know a salesperson or just a business advisor. You are what I sometimes call a non-equity partner in their business, and that's how you're seen. You become the go to person.
2: So what about techniques for responding to questions well? And you gave that example of how do you mean? I'm <laughs> just going to use it myself. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you mean, Chris? <laughs> I mean, I mean that when uh, you, you get a question um, that is thrown at you, uh, one that you can't answer. I guess you probably just answered the question. Actually, am I <laughs> Yes, you do. <laughs> uh, i use. How do you mean? Um, you, you also, I've, I've, I've sort of heard that you you say to people that uh, they should love objections. Yeah. You know, yeah. M- m- most people kind of fear them, don't they? I, I wonder why should you love them
3: well I think the the first thing is that people tend to particularly entrepreneurs or small business people um will tend to see an objection as something that is personal that uh because they're rejecting your product or your service that they're rejecting you in some way which is which is not the case i mean usually, in most cases, the people you know you don't know that well they don 't know you that well, so they clearly can't be objecting to you as a person, so so, so an, an objection is always business focused, that's the first thing. But the beauty about an objection and the reason I love objections is that an objection is an indication that they're still involved in the relationship. They're looking for more information. I haven't put it across the right way. They don't understand. I haven't clarified it in some way. Um, And and the reason I say you should love that is because they're, they're definitely involved in the relationship. If they give you nothing back, the one thing you cannot deal with is indifference. If I have indifference where they just don't care, then it's time for me to say thank you for your time and move on. But an objection means they're still engaged in the process, and I think that's a really important thing to remember that we we still have some engagement with the process. The other thing I find a lot of people back away from very quickly is when someone says no. Uh, no, we're not interested. Oh, fair enough. Thanks very much. And away they go. But in fact, no, uh, unless you're in a social context and it's a lady who's saying it, let's be clear about that. Uh, but in business, if you say no, then what we mean is no, I'm not the person who makes the decision. No, it's not the right time for me. No, the budgets are all gone this year. No, it's the wrong color. No always is, there's a foundation to a no. There's something beneath the the no. And you need to find out what that is. And and a great way to find out what that is is, okay, fair enough, I accept that. May I ask, why Why would you say no on this occasion or why are you saying no on this occasion? And often what you'll find then is the real... Reason the secondary factor, if you will, behind the no, and then that gives you more wiggle room because you can then look at turning that into a, an opportunity to close some business or to come back at a later time, and and that's why I like objections. They mean the person's still involved.
2: Yeah, that I have had a, in the last uh, couple of weeks. I have a, a client that I I really respect and uh, I really want to do. More work with and, and I put a proposal into them about, um, about doing some work around, uh, about actually audio recordings and, uh, helping use them, uh, audio and video and things to help it in add value to their clients and have them learn more and, um, elevate uh, their perception in the mind of their clients. And, and what they um, came back with was after some, some talks was actually really like the idea, really like you. Um, but, uh, we, Talking to justify this financially in terms of uh, the return, and uh, I think that was what was interesting out of that is, and the next stage that we've got is we're going to get together and we're going to sit and brainstorm that because actually being completely open with them. I wasn't quite sure how to justify that myself. It all makes good common sense from, from uh, both perspectives. But the solution has been the next stage is that we get together and work on that on the same side of the table and just and brainstorm it. And that will be helpful to my, my business irrespective of whether we end up doing the work or not. But,
3: and I think, you know, when you go to brainstorm the situation, if you act in the role of the facilitator, and use questions effectively, then you'll be seen to be adding value as well. So, so by helping them come to a conclusion that's ultimately using you and your services, but you've actually added value by facilitating their thought process by using very powerful and influential questions. The, the one thing you need to understand about questions is the person who asks the questions controls the process because when someone gives you an answer, the person who gives you the answer is actually accountable for that response. So you can hold them accountable to an answer that they give you, And that means that the person who asks the questions is actually the person in total charge of the relationship, not the person who's downloading information.
2: Mm. Great. Well, on that note, we're going to go to our our last commercial break. And and after that, we'll look at some um, some techniques for handling objections. So we'll be back with you in just a couple of minutes. (laughs)
0: business community's first choice in internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network.
1: You are tuned in to Be More, Achieve More with host Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to info at bemoreachievemore.com That's info at bemoreachievemore.com now, back to Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper of BeMoreAchievedMore.com
2: and CC1Consulting.com. I'm with Sean Weaver, and we've been talking about using questions to influence client meetings. And, uh, and I wonder, Sean, sure, I mean, do you have any specific techniques that you would recommend for handling objections? So, you know, if, if someone says, for example, I don't have the budget
3: yeah well that's that's not unusual. I mean the first thing uh, I'd need to find out is so well, have you only one specific budget here, or are there different budgets that we might be able to work with So there may be more than just one budget involved uh, in which case you'd look for that. The second thing that I'm, I have a particular favorite of mine is I might say, well, when when, when is your budget kicking in again? When, when does it happen? And they might say, well, you know, for example, at the end of a year, which is typically when the budget's run out, they might say, well, next quarter, which starts, you know, in January 1. I say, well, look, would you be comfortable uh, with this? What if I were to deliver the service now and then budget you next year without work for you? It means that you can have it straight away and you don't need to pay us until next quarter and so it'll fit in with your budgets. And that's something that, you know, it's, it's it's a useful tactic because in every case, you're looking to be of service, and very few people would will have a problem with you delivering something that's of value to them now if you can negotiate to build them in the next quarter if it works for you on that particular basis. Um, and that's that's a really good way of looking at a budget situation.
2: Okay, okay, Sean, so you're talking, we're having a sort of dialogue, and maybe I've got... I've got so – you presented something to me, and maybe I've got too many projects going on. Uh, how would you respond to that kind of an objection? I've got too much going on to deal with it now, perhaps.
3: Okay. Well, well probably what I, would do, what I would do is if I've had that values elicitation question at the start, so I've found out what's most important during the next six months and what else, and what else, and I have that structure, so well, let me ask you a question. How many of those projects – that you're working on right now are going to deliver your final objective that actually meet these requirements that you've indicated to me the most important things over the next six months. And if they don't meet those values, isn't it just possible that we might want to consider and focus on what we're talking about here because ultimately that does meet your values and that will get you there faster. Which of the two do you think might be more important? And if you listen, that becomes very plausible. It aligns itself with their values. It indicates a faster route to their end objective. And I'm using soft language like might, perhaps, and suppose, which is not a hard sell. It's just asking them to engage and reconsider the situation that they're in. In other words, really what we're doing with questions, Chris, is we're managing and framing their perceptions. What they think is important now as opposed to what 's really important can all be shaped and changed by the power of the questions that we bring to the game
2: mm. and, and you 've got to be quite sensitive I, c- I can see around that question to make sure mm. that you're not, you uh, 're not kind of undermining their authority by maybe asking them you know, what those projects are and <laughs> you, oh no no no, I mean no,
3: i wouldn't even look at what the projects are because actually i don 't want them focusing on the projects. I want them focusing on what I'm talking about at the end of the day. All I'm requesting them, and that's a very important word, is to relate that to what they've already told you are the critically important things for you and asking how many of them are meeting these requirements that you specified are the most important things. And if they're not meeting those requirements, surely it's reasonable to consider something that will get you there faster. So it's very plausible sort of stuff. And that's all you want them to, to understand, that this is very plausible, it's very doable, and therefore it's a definitely a better direction to go in.
2: Great. Now, th- all of these, uh, these questioning techniques that you've shared with us today, uh, questioning takes, I-, I certainly found when I, and particularly when I went through the kind of NLP process that you, we mentioned earlier on that it takes quite a while to sort of get your head around and to really, really listen to questions and, and very carefully think about how you're going to respond. Um, how would you recommend people go about improving their questioning techniques?
3: Um, Well, the logical thing is take a really good training like mine. (laughs) 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 Uh, I suppose really what they should think about is, is just become more aware when they ask questions what the outcome of the question is. We often tend to just ask questions just to sort of maintain a conversation. But if we think about what our outcome from a meeting should be, then we should be thinking about the kinds of questions that we use in order to get us to that outcome or at least halfway to that outcome that perhaps another meeting might get us there. I think fundamentally is you need to think about being curious. You need to think about engaging the client and you need to think about what your final objective is and, and, and how you add value and how you're of service. If you keep those things in mind, you can become much more conscious of the kind of questions that you use and the benefit that brings not just to you, but also in clarifying the insights and ideas and the perceptions of the client that you're working with as well. Because in a lot of cases, our clients are under so much pressure that actually someone who comes and helps them get some clarity about what they're doing and why is a really valuable person for them to be engaged with.
2: Yeah, great. So so what are the final key messages that you'd like to leave us with?
3: I guess the final key message is just be a little bit more conscious of how you ask questions to understand that questions put you very much in control of the meeting and that it allows you to co-create solutions with your clients, which is what they're looking for. They want co-ownership. And the more a client is involved in designing the solution that you provide, the less likely they are to go somewhere else. They're always going to remain with you because they'll see you as a partner and not just somebody who's pushing something.
2: Great. Well, there's been some great content in the show today. So, huge thank you for, for joining us. I hope you've enjoyed being with us today.
3: Yeah, it's been fun, Chris. Really appreciate the invitation.
2: You're very welcome. I think you're probably the first person we've had on the show from Ireland. Um, hey. I might be wrong. Uh, actually, that's not quite true, because I, I should also say a thank you to Adrian Lawler, actually, because today you might have noticed, if you've, if you've listened to the show before, that uh, we had a different sort of voiceover. Um, Adrian Lawler, who is originally from Ireland, was a BBC and Sky News reader. She now has a site called iNewsU, uh, and Adrian uh, very kindly did some new voiceovers for us. So um, you might just about detect um, a little bit of Irish in her. I'm not, I'm not um, Irish accent in her. So uh, thank you very much again, Sean. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Really fascinating content. If you want to find out more about Sean Weaver, uh, do go to www.seanweaver.com. That's Sean, S-E-A-N-W-E-A-F for Freddie, E-R.com. Uh, If you have any questions or feedback um, on the show, please do send it to me at chris at bemoreachievemore.com or leave on my Facebook page. Now, next week's show, um, we're going to have Mindy Gibbons-Klein, and she's going to be talking about thought leadership, about how you can be perceived, uh, like Sean, as an expert in your field. And I'm expecting some fabulous content uh, around that as well, which uh, if you want to be an expert in your field, do tune in again, do accesses again next week. Uh, so thanks again, Sean, and uh, we'll speak to you all again soon.
1: Thank you for listening to Be More, Achieve More. Please join your host, Chris Cooper, again next Friday at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, typically 4 p.m. London on the Voice America Business Channel. Enjoy your week.